from Amelia's Bible, and oftentimes she'll tell me, I'll ask her, what story do you want to read tonight? And it'll often be the story of the wee boy and the giant. And, uh, and so our backdrop shows that picture of this uh, story today. It's found in First Samuel uh, chapter 19, or chapter 17, and uh, I'll read from here. The young hero and the horrible giant. God's people had some very scary enemies. But the Philistines were the scariest of them all. And now the Philistines had come to fight against God's army, the Israelite army. Does that all sound as if it's theologically correct? The Philistines had a secret weapon. And this secret weapon was called Goliath. He was a giant. There's questions over how tall he was. Some people say he was only seven foot. Some people say he was nine. A giant so tall, so strong, and so scary, no one was able to fight him and live to tell the tale. So there they were, the Philistines standing on the top of one hill and God's people standing on the top of the other. Every day, Goliath would come out and and shout, send me your best soldier and fight me. And if he wins, we will be your slaves. And if you win, or that... If I, if I win, then you will be my slave. No one spoke. No one moved. Chickens, Goliath shouted. Your God can't save you. I'll rip your heads off and have you a toast. His beardy, greedy eyes glowed at them hungrily, hungrily with this horrible helmet, as if at any moment he would gobble them up. He laughed a terrible laugh. What was it like? Ha, ha, ha. It boomed and echoed around and around the dry valley. Well, Goliath might as well have been a green slimy monster with three heads because God's people were frozen with fear. Ever experienced that emotion? Their, their eyes glazed over and they turned deadly pale they knew if someone didn't do something quick if something didn't happen they would be lost but God would do something he had sent he would send someone to save them now you remember in earlier stories a young boy called David he was the youngest in a family of eight of the family of Jesse his three older brothers were in the army One day when David brought his brother's lunch, he saw Goliath and saw how scared everyone was. Don't be afraid, David said. I'll fight him for you. You're only a shepherd boy, his oldest brother told him. The king told him the same. And Goliath is a soldier. How will you fight him? God will help me, David said. So the king said, gave David his royal armor to wear, but it was too heavy, too big, and he couldn't walk in it. I don't need this, David said. Instead, David picked up five smooth stones from the stream or the brook. One, two, three, four, five. I think you're distracting people, darling. Took his sling and walked towards Goliath, step by step by step. 
Goliath walked towards David. Thud, thud, thud. You, Goliath, peered down to the small boy. I'm little, David shouted up to him, but my God is great. Goliath laughed an even terrible laugh than usual. It went with just one swing of his sword, Goliath could finish that boy off. But David kept going. It wasn't how strong, it isn't how strong you are or how many swords or spears you have will save you. It's God who saves you. And this is God's battle. And God always wins the battles. David put a stone in his sling and slung it and let it go. Whiz the stone flew like a bullet through the air and thud hit Goliath between the eyes. He stumbled and he staggered and then crashed to the floor, dead. When the Philistines saw Goliath was dead, they ran away. And when God's people saw they were running away, they cheered. God had saved his people. And who was the hero? And who else? David. David. Great story, isn't it? You can go on to Sunday school now. Go on to Sunday school now. Go. <laughs> Jenna's the rescue. A great story, uh, as I've said, found in First Samuel chapter 17. Over the last couple of weeks, I have been really chewing over this story, and uh, and unlike children, we were all probably were maybe children when we heard this story first, and uh, and we probably heard it and just took it for granted, took it at face value, and uh, but I've really felt over the last four or five weeks that God has just been impressing upon me to just maybe take a wee bit of time. What's the Scottish term to hold back? Cawcanny, to go cawcanny over this story. Just to maybe just pull back a wee bit and maybe just hover over it for a wee bit longer. And so um, with the help of my daughter and just uh, really sensed in my spirit, I've been reading over and over the story, not alone just as that story version, but actually digging down and reading it uh, in the Bible and thinking about about David, this young boy who comes to the, the battlefield. It's the story sometimes referred to as the champion and the underdog. I'm not really sure whether that's a good title for the story. I'm not really sure that David was the underdog in this story. Ronnie, uh, not here, but he would have always um, encouraged us to put yourself in the shoes of the characters within the Bible. It's always good to do that. And, uh, and if I put my, sho- my, my feet in the shoes of David, I don't think I would, uh, I would act or react the way David did within this story. Let me tell you one of the big reasons why. There is no sign within this story that David was one bit intimidated by anything around him. There is not one ounce of fear described within David within this story. I want to use four headings just to go quickly through over this story, uh, just some of the things that I've looked at within this story. The first thing that I want to 
think about is posture. You know, I want us to look at the posture of different people within this story. But ultimately, we want to learn from the shepherd boy's posture, the champion. I want us to look at skill within this story. Sometimes we're, we, we think David's just this young, random boy. But the more and more you read, the more and more you study David's life, we realize that David, at this point of his life, was a very skilled boy. I want to look at what he carried. It's important to know what David didn't carry as well as what he did carry. And I think there's some stuff in that. And then I want to wrap it all up with purpose. What's the purpose? What do we learn from this story? What was the purpose of David's life? And what's the purpose of a story like this being recorded? Posture. As I've said, we ultimately want to look at the posture of David. But I want to start off with the posture of the giant. What do you think the posture of the giant is in this story? He comes out for 40 days and he taunts the Israel army. He's a giant. He's bigger than normal. He's a bigger man than normal. And he comes out for 40 days and he taunts God's people. He says, am I not a Philistine in verse 40? Am I not someone great? Do you see his chest going out? Am I not bigger in stature? Am I not holding you all ransom? I see the posture of this man of one of arrogance and self-belief. And I, I, I sort of thought about that a little bit and, and the difficulty today within Christian, within church is that this type of teaching is preached. You are someone important. You can be whatever you want to be. You are a great leader. You know, we were talking about this, I think about last week or the week before. On Sundays in America, um, on Sundays in America, restaurants, people who serve in restaurants hate Sundays because people are so full of arrogance. They're so demanding. They're so puffed up of themselves. They're so full of self-importance. And that's what happens. That's the fruit of, of listening to messages like that. We, um, like, like Goliath, sometimes we think we're the new kids on the block. We're the leader of the new army. The old ways are, aren't really significant anymore. The old mannerisms aren't significant anymore. We are the leader of the greatest and the newest and the most rebellious army. You know, the Bible's clear. We are great, but we are great because of Jesus. Outside of him, we are nothing. And Goliath, that was not Goliath's posture. His was one of self-belief. The second posture is that of Saul and, and his army, the whole Israelite army. Not just part, but the whole Israelite army. There's one, he was gripped, other translations says frozen with fear. 
You know, fear can be a real emotion. I have experienced it a couple of times in my life. I went on roller coasters that I shouldn't have went on. The last time was to try and impress Joanne when we were starting to date. I said, never again. But fear can be a real emotion. People can be gripped by fear. Fear can, what would you say, stall you in your tracks. Have you ever been involved in come across an accident or ever come across a situation or ever just got bad news and it so gripped you with fear that you froze? And you know, living a lifestyle of that like this army did, they became tortured with fear. Have you ever heard of people who are tortured with fear? It's an ongoing process every day. They say if you take fear out of people's lives. Now, I'm not just talking about the church. If you take fear out of people's lives, you have dealt with 90% of their enemies. You have dealt with 90% of people's difficulties. Fear reacts and acts and displays itself in many different ways in people's lives. But guess what? Fear, sin is not the great difficulty for the Christian. Sin is not the great difficulty for the Christian. We only sin or mostly sin because we fear. We fear God is not faithful to his promise. Fear is the greatest difficulty a Christian will face. You know, in verse 22, we read that when Goliath did that second ha-ha-ha, we, we read that it caused the armies to run in fear. Fear will cause you to run away. It's a real emotion. You know, we read also, um, how do you pronounce David's oldest brother? Eliab. Eliab, David's oldest brother. We read about him in verse 28. And you know, fear caused him to say funny things. And fear causes us to say funny things. When David said, look, I'll go and fight the giant, Aliab said, you're just a shepherd boy. All you've been good for all your life is taking care of our father's sheep. You know, Aliab is afraid to do anything himself, and he's part of the army. He's afraid to do anything himself. And yet, instead of cheering his brother on, instead of cheering his younger brother on, He's nasty and cruel with his words. Bitterness will rob you of the ability to, to succeed. It's stinking thinking. You've ever heard that saying before? It's stinking thinkingness, thinking. And it's the fruit of what we call, we've, we've talked quite a bit of it, about it here. It's the fruit of a person with an orphan spirit. Do you not think it's strange that Eliab, who is the oldest of Jesse's sons, of eight sons. He's the oldest, and you have the youngest, David, both standing in front of the giant. One is totally gripped with fear. It's, it's, uh, and the result of that is bitterness and discontentment and, and just, just a wrong spirit. But David's standing right beside him. Both of them come from the one household, and David's standing right beside him and says he's full of faith. 
One sees the challenge. One sees both look at this great challenge. One sees the challenge as a difficulty. The young boy sees the challenge as an opportunity. Sometimes that really questioned, that really spoke to me. As we look at at what seems to be giants before us, do we see them as, as challenges or difficulties? As difficulties, or do we see them as great opportunities? That's what David did. He saw it as a great opportunity. The glass was half full for David, not half empty. It was half full. Come on, we need to get into the shoes of David here. It was half full for him. I need to get into these shoes. The fourth posture is that of David. And as I've said, this is the one that probably intrigues me the most. I don't really know how to describe David's posture. Other than that, it's one that is ready for whatever that day has set before it. You see, if I had been there, I probably would have went, uh, offloaded the goods with with um, the people, then went to see my brothers, saw the challenge of the giant, and then fell down on my knees and had a prayer meeting for a while till I sensed the spirit moving. And then if the spirit didn't move, then I'd probably say, well, that's not really my battle. But that's not the posture of David in this story. We never read that within this story. Last weekend, everybody was, was glued to the TV on Saturday morning at 5 o'clock to watch that big boxing match. I didn't. And uh, I've got my own reasons for that. And uh, if you want to know them, we'll have a cup of tea, a cup of coffee after. But this was a great fight between Mayweather and McGregor. And and the whole stir around it created a revenue of 700 million or maybe even a thousand million, whatever that is. A billion. It's probably closer to a billion, the revenue that was created around this fight. Of which 300 million, they reckon, three to 400 million were shared between these two men. This fight that David was in was not like this fight. But I want to show you what this fight, what the difference was. This fight between David and Goliath ended one would live and the other would die. This fight with David and Goliath left that your nation would, would either be servants or be served. There was a huge responsibility. In this fight, there was no referee to say when, when David punched him too hard, we'll stop the fight. There was none of that. This fight ended with life or death. Not like that thing they called a fight last weekend. Not that I'm in for death sports, but and both parties in that fight last weekend walked away as multi, multi millionaires. That's not the way this fight was going to end. This fight was going to end, as I say, one nation would be served or be servants because of who won. You know, David had plenty of opportunities to bow out of this fight. As I read this story, if you go over and over again, you'll read plenty of opportunities. One is King Saul. This was King Saul's battle. We read in a couple of chapters earlier 
in the book of Samuel that King Saul was a giant also. He was head and shoulders in stature above everyone else. And so it was his battle. And so David could have said, you know what, it's the king's battle. He could have said, you know what, it's the army's battle. This is the army's job. This is what they're trained and paid to do. Why should I bother doing it? Even my my three brothers are there. They have been all qualified and commissioned to fight this battle. I'm not adequately armed. He could have made that excuse. He could have just took the posture of everyone else and, uh, and just stood on the sidelines and hoped that the situation would change. I was in a shop the other day and uh, I heard two people having a conversation. They weren't old uh, and they didn't seem to um, uh, held back by any sort of inflictions or anything. But one, the man said to the lady, how are you? And you couldn't help but overhear the conversation because we were standing to pay for something. And, uh, and the conversation went on and then the, the lady replied, and this is no down on women, men said this too. Um, but the lady happened to reply on this case. Um, I'm hanging in there. What else can I do? I do understand that there's days and seasons and times in our lives where we, we do, all we can do is hang in there. I do understand that. I've been through those times in my life. But alarm bells ring, always ring within my spirit when that becomes a lifestyle or an expectancy of people. And just hanging in there, sure, what else can I do? And that's the mentality that Saul and his armies had taken on. You see, if you, we read it was 40 days. And so for those of you who are, are trying to maybe eat healthy or, or create a new habit in life, they say if you can break the 28-day mark, it becomes a routine. And a routine becomes part of a lifestyle. And so they were 40 days at this, and this had become part of a lifestyle. But let's look at David. David's posture. David's posture. This is what we read about David and his army after David defeats Goliath. We read first before that, before he defeats Goliath. We read that he went to the, to the, and delivered the provisions for his brothers. And he ran from there to the battlefield to hear what was happening. When he had heard what was happening, when he had made the decision of, um, uh, that he was going to fight the, 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 the Goliath, the giant, he ran from the side of the battlefield onto the battlefield. And then when we read when he's facing Goliath, he runs towards the giant. He uses his sling, kills the giant, and right after that, the giant falls to the ground. He runs and cuts the giant's head off. He stirs faith within the army, and we see that the armies, the Israel armies, all of a sudden have moved from a place of fear to a place of victory. They run and slay and chase the Philistine armies as they are fleeing. They run and chase them and kill them all. You see that posture of moving forward? It's not a posture of standing. 
And that all stems from, I believe, his identity. You see, his identity, let's hear where his identity came from. His identity came from those words in verse 45. He said to the Philistine, You come to me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts. Another translation for that is, I come to you in the name of Yahweh. Maybe at the end, we could read out some of those, those, those meanings of the word Yahweh. You see, a question I would have for myself is, what governs my posture? Or do I truly understand where my posture comes from? We live in an age where we're cruelly, cruelly obsessed by image. This is where Goliath's posture came from, or his identity came from, from image. But the real issue for us is identity. We need to know who we belong to. And if we chase after image, I thought this was brilliant. Someone shared this with me the other day. If we chase after image, if we chase after one, we lose the other. It's not image. It's not image. It's identity will govern your posture. Second thing that I want us to look at is skill. How are we going for time? We're going good because we're halfways. And that's not a David McBride halfways. He's not here, so I can joke with him. Skill. Was David really the underdog in this story? Was he this just this whippersnapper, this young boy who decided just to take a chance? I'm sure I'll take a chance with the giant. I don't believe he was. The more and more I look at this story, I don't believe he was. He knew right from the outset he could defeat this giant. The definition for skill is to learn and become one with an art, a gift, or a talent. To become one with an art, or a gift, or a talent. David's skills were twofold. Robert and Lois, you like this. One, he was a farmer boy. He was a farmer boy. He looked after his father's sheep. That was Jesse's reputation. That was the family trade. They were known, they were big time sheep, not just sheep farmers, but sheep breeders. That meant that their sheep went far and wide. And and it seemed like an insignificant job to some, but it wasn't. Their whole family reputation was on this job, lent on the fact of how well these sheep were cared for. Second was he was a musician. And Paul, you like this because you're, you're a very good musician. <laughs> and Adam, yes, that's very good. You see, David's job up to this point, he would go backwards and forwards from the hills looking after his father's sheep. One day he would look after the father's sheep, but the next day he went to the palace. And what he did in the palace was he played before King Saul. Because King Saul would have a troubled spirit, what was called a troubled spirit. 
And David would pull out his harp and he would play before King Saul. And this would quieten the troubled spirit within Saul. Don't know how, don't know why, but that was just the fact of it. Now, I'll speak to you the one, about the one that I know the least about, and that's music. I, I, uh, I spent five years at uh, piano lessons, and um, uh, I, it was just disastrous for me. Um, and, uh, and so I admire anybody with the determination, the ability, and the patience to play an instrument well, like some of the people that we have here. Now, a sheep farmer, I know a wee bit more about being a sheep farmer or a shepherd. You see, for David to be a shepherd, he had to learn a lot of skills as a young boy. Often we have this picture, as Joanne was telling me yesterday, did he not just sit out on a rock at the side of a mountain? Definitely not. That's like saying Robert and Lois when they go and grow grain in, in, in Zambia that you just stand and watch it grow. There's many things that has to happen. There's many skills that you have to use, not alone to plant it, not alone to make sure it grows, not alone in harvesting, but actually getting the product ready for sale and knowing the breeds of your product and, and everything to that. And so David, as a young boy, would have to be multi-skilled. You see, the difference between an average farmer and a good farmer. I know you all like to have your wee, wee jokes about farmers and farmers talk a lot and all that there. But the, average, the difference between, and I've said this before, between an average farmer and a good farmer is that a good farmer is always trying to improve, always trying to better his skill. That's what I say about farmers. Sometimes people wonder why they talk so much. They're always asking each other, how do you do this? How do you do that? How do you, how do you, how, what did you do here? What did you do there? And then what they do is they take that information and bring it back home and apply it to their own setting. So one of, of the skills that David would have learned within this taking care of sheep is to protect the sheep from the wild animals. And uh, uh, in doing that, uh, one of the skills that he would have used would be to be able to use a sling. Now, most of us know what a catapult is. Okay, so it's like a, a long band, and you put something in it and you let it go. This was not a catapult. This was a, a sling. This was a tra- You had to be trained how to use a sling. You had to be skilled. You had to be at one with your implement to know how to use it. You know, my brother is a great sheep farmer, and, and he loves that. He loves that. He's passionate about it. And, uh, and, uh, and, and musicians, great musicians are the same. They're passionate. Uh, uh, they have perseverance. They have patience. They want to invest in their skill well. And that's what David did you know your desires and your passions will dictate what you invest your time your energy and your resources and we've heard david mcbride share that quite
quite a few times here. Your desires will determine and passions will determine what you invest your time, money, and resources in. What's that skill? You know, David had no idea about these skills. These skills would be used someday on a platform like this. He had no idea. He had no idea that when he was learning to perfect how to use that, that instrument, the sling, he had no idea that one day he would face this giant. He was just being obedient to what his father had called him to do, the everyday ordinary. He had no idea that his music probably would take him to the inside of the palace. And there, in the inside of the palace, he would learn what the palace looked like. And so when he became king later on in his life, he knew all the goings-on of the palace. See how sometimes in just in your everyday ordinary, God is preparing for what he has in the future. I have a question. As I've said, David has asked, what do we spend our time, money, and resources in? Are we rebelling against the what you would call the mountainside experiences? Because for David, that was a lonely place. His brothers were all together. But David was out on the mountain taking care of the sheep. But he didn't waste that time. He used that time wisely to perfect all his skills. We're passionate about people investing in their skills. We're passionate here because we want to see the God potential set alive in everyone here. We want to hear the God stories come back of what God is doing in people's lives. I've said this before. You see, when you win, when you win, we all win. When you win in your story, we all win. And that was the case for David and his family. David just didn't win the battle for himself. He just didn't defeat the, 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 the giant. There was huge repercussions back into his family. His family were exempt for, ta- for taxes for I don't know how many years. It, it elevated his family. It not alone elevated his family, it released all those soldiers who were gripped by fear. And the nation, the nation excelled because of this one battle, because of this one skill that was perfected well. I want to just mention then some things that David carried. But before I do that, I want to mention, as I was preparing this morning, I think it's important for us to understand some things that David didn't carry. David didn't carry offense. He had, his brother offended him as he goes to the battlefield and says, who do you think you are. You're just a measly sheep farmer. And he had the choice of carrying that and allowing that to affect the outcome, but he chose not to carry that. He didn't carry condemnation. Saul said to him, look, you're only a boy. I I admire, he probably says, I admire your willingness, but you're only a boy. 
He didn't carry that condemnation. He didn't allow that to take seed in his life and carry it on. And I was thinking about some of the things that we unnecessarily carry in our lives. Ronnie preached about a simple life a couple of, maybe two years ago or something like that. And he was talking it in the idea of all the stuff that we gather around us in our houses, in our homes, and we carry a lot of stuff that doesn't really matter. But we carry a lot of stuff in our, in our beings. We carry fear and worry and doubt. Some of us carry an entitlement spirit. It says, I don't have enough. Some of us carry a spirit of unbelief. Some of us carry a compromise spirit that really says, well, you know what? I can sit on the sideline and watch this one. Some of us carry that poverty spirit. And, uh, and the one that I think that the Lord wants to impress on me today is, is the fact some of us carrying that armor of soul for me represents a religious spirit. Looks great on the outside. Looks brilliant on the outside. His armor must have been something else. It must have been some moment for David to put that armor on. But he said, no, I can't carry that. But what he did carry was, we learn it in, in, verse, four, in verse 40, is five stones. Five stones that had been picked from the brook. You know, the Bible refers to brook as a quiet place. A place where God would often draw people to, to, to be built up, to be strengthened, to be renewed, with, to be refreshed. And, uh, and so David goes to this brook. This brook that probably ran for years and maybe even centuries. And there's some stones in the bottom of that brook. These stones, the water would have gently ran over them and smoothed them and made them perfectly round, perfect for a well-skilled slinger. I said slinger, not swinger. And so he carried something that had been perfectly formed in a quiet place. The second thing, those stones from the brook, let me tell you about those stones from the brook. He didn't just reach to the ground and pick up stones that seemed smooth and round. He picked up ones that were from the brook because they were weighted stones. What do I mean by that? I mean, these stones were still wet. They were heavy. They, weren't, they just didn't have a sprinkle of rain over them. They were heavy and wet. Puma is, loves baseball. He's a baseball fanatic. Can't still understand the game, but I'll get there one day because I love you. But these stones, when they're flung with a perfect slinger, would travel up to 120 miles an hour the same speed as a baseball, as the fastest or one of the fastest baseballs have traveled. But because they were wet, they had four times the impact of a dry stone. Now, I know that might not seem like a lot, but that meant 
that this stone wasn't going to just injure Goliath. It was going to kill him. It was going to kill him on the first shot. The third thing that we read is that these stones that he picked up, he would have put them in his pouch. His pouch was was something that was on the side on his side. And as he walked along, he probably rolled these stones over in his fingers and became familiar with them. That's what slingers would have done. They they became familiar with their stones. There's lots of football fanatics in this room. And what a good footballer does he 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 is at one with his football. He knows his football. He knows his boots, first of all. Well, he knows himself, but he knows his boots and he knows his football. Everything has to connect well. He has to be familiar. Rory, Rory McIlroy isn't playing well at the minute because he has changed his golf clubs, because he has changed some of the equipment. He's not at one with it yet. That's what they say anyway. And, uh, and so David would have rolled these stones through his fingers. What he would have picked up from the brook, he would have roll them through his fingers. And it's a picture of meditating. Meditating on what's picked up from the brook. And that's what David said in in Psalm 1. He talked about meditating on God's word because it becomes strength for your life. Becoming one with what God has given you. What's picked up at at the brook. And then the fourth thing that he would have carried was a slinger in his hand. A shepherd always carried two things. One was the staff in one hand. That was to guide and protect the sheep. But he also carried a weapon in the other hand to protect and ward off the enemy. A swinger, a a slinger, was a very trained person in the armies in that day. An army was made up of three types of people. There was the cavalry, the people on horses. There was those who had the sword and the spear. And there was those who were, 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 um, were bow and arrow and slingers. And, and they were skilled people in them days. So David was not an unskilled boy coming to this battlefield. You know, I have some questions to ask as I think about what David carried. First question is, when was the last time I was to the brook? I went to the brook to pick up some five, some stones. When was the last time I went to the brook to pick up something that was weighted? Something that would have impact. We all want to have impact in our communities. We all want to have impact on the people around us. David talks in Psalm 23. We, we shared it on Friday morning. He talked about going to the brook and drinking in the ways of God. The second thing is, for those of us who have a discipline of going to the brook, how many times do we go to the brook but we're not really there at all? Do you understand what I'm saying? How many times do we go to hear from God but our minds are somewhere else? How many times do we go, and uh, as Amy shared so well, we have so many distractions that we can't see what God is setting before us. The other question is, what are we carrying? What are we actually carrying? 
Are we carrying offense and disappointment and, and all these things? You know, we're just walking around. No, no, I'm not carrying those Neville. And sometimes the fruit of our lives tell us a different story. We are. We're carrying things that we've never dealt with and then when the pressure comes on or difficult times come or the cracks start to show, those things start to come to the surface again. We're carrying disappointment. A church has let me down. A friend has let me down. We're carrying condemnation. Someone once spoke something over my life. I've never really let it go. I never really let it go. Do we know the full potential of what we could carry? You see, if we know the full potential of what we could carry, then we could let go of the things that we're not meant to carry. We need to maybe look at that a wee bit better. We maybe need to look at the potential that God has set before us. Look at these challenges as opportunities. You see, what I, I, I sense this, I wrote this down this morning. What I sense is that God wants to give us a solid piece of theology. A solid piece of theology. Shaped and saturated by the Holy Spirit. See the water running over that stone? Saturating it. He wants to be able to place that in the hands of people who are intentional and who want to be intentional to break down the giants in the land. That's what I sense God wants to give us. And that's why I'm looking forward to going into the book of Judges. Because I think God has a lot to say to us. I think God has a lot he wants to speak to us. I love worship. I love worship. I love the prophetic. I love prayer. I don't think there should ever be any divides among them. One leads into another. They all flow between each other. But you know, sometimes it's important for us to carry a stone or two. A good piece of theology. Shaped well. Now listen to me. Shaped well by the Holy Spirit. Perfected well. Saturated well by the Holy Spirit. If not, it will only be information. It will only ever be information. Finally, let me talk about purpose. Time's away. And Paul is uh, ready to, to lead us in some more songs. David's purpose. As I've said, information is great, but we want to move to application. There's no point in having information if we don't know how to apply it. David, as an obedient son, goes to the battlefield as his father has requested. It's just an ordinary day. It's not an extraordinary day. And there he faces injustice. There he faces injustice. And even at that point, how many times do we walk past Injustice. How many times have we that spirit of compromise upon us? He's surrounded by his brothers. He's surrounded by the king. He's surrounded by the armies who are all frozen with fear. He quickly realizes this is not right. This is not right. He's a young boy. There's plenty of well-educated people there's plenty of advisors to the king. But David realizes this is not right. He 
He goes to Saul, recounts his previous victories, and then says, I will go and do what I've already learned to do when I was taking care of my father's sheep. I will kill this giant. Saul finally agrees and gives David a sword, his sword and his armor. I love the response of David here. He said, I can't wear these. I haven't, I haven't tested them. I, I, I don't know what to do with them. But we read in verse 38 that he puts them off. He puts them off. He, he physically takes off what he's not meant to be wearing. Come on. Sometimes we think this is all so spiritual. That, that we say one prayer and then God will take it off. Sometimes we need to, to move and take off some of the things that we're carrying. Really, I really sense that today. We're carrying some stuff we shouldn't carry. But in putting them off, he doesn't just leave it there. He picks up. He picks up the things that he is at one with. His sling that he had vested in. Those five stones that have been perfectly formed and weighted. And he goes to the battlefield. And we read in verse 45. David says to the Philistine, You come to me with javelin and spear. But I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts. He reminds himself of, um, he reminds himself of where he's at. You see, David's ultimate purpose, and we, can, we need to ask ourselves this question, David's ultimate purpose was in his everyday ordinary, his ultimate purpose was to bring glory to God. In his everyday ordinary. You know, for David, for Goliath and the armies, both sides, this was an event. This was a planned event. For David, this was just part of his everyday ordinary. He didn't have three weeks to conjure up a prayer meeting where he could rally his family and friends together and say, I'm going to fight this giant. He didn't have probably three minutes. He just had to go and do the everyday ordinary. He knew his purpose. His purpose was to glorify God. And he was well equipped and prepared for it. How well am I equipped and prepared for the everyday ordinary? What is my purpose? What is the thing that drives my life? You see, if you don't know your purpose, you'll not. You see, your purpose will determine the posture you take every day. The purp- your purpose will determine your desires. Your desires, actually your desires and your passions. It will determine how you invest your desires and your passions, your time, your resources. Every day, if you know your purpose, it will cause you to be intentional about what you carry. And not alone about what you carry, the weight of what you carry and the potential impact it has around us. Let me finish as Paul comes to sing.
using the words of David. David, a man who was first of all confident. Secondly, he was well prepared, well trained. And thirdly, equipped for this task. He says to the, to the giant, I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts. He knew his identity. He knew who he was. It, it structured his posture. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hands. David didn't say this day I will kill you. This day the Lord will do it. And he said the reason why. This is the reason why. And this should be the purpose of our lives. Is that all the earth will know. There is a God in Israel. Does all my family know there is a God? Does all my neighborhood know there is a God? Does all my community know there is a God? Does this nation know there is a God? And so, be careful of your posture. Think about your posture. Think about your skills. Are you investing in them or are you just being complacent and standing by thinking, you know, one day I'll do that, but I'm not going to just do it at the minute. I can't be bothered. Are you thinking about what you carry and where have you picked that up from and what's the weight of what you carry? If David, as a young boy, 17 years of age probably, can change everything for a nation because of one small skill, because of one small stone, because he has invested in it. What's the potential for you and me? We have the Holy Spirit. We have the Holy Spirit to help us. I'm not saying David didn't, but we have. The Holy Spirit has already been poured out. Sometimes it intrigues me, and I'm not sure of the theology of it, but sometimes I sit with people and people pray, come Holy Spirit. And I can understand that. I can understand that being sometimes the case. But we have already been told the Holy Spirit has been poured out upon sons and daughters. I like the prayer which says, Lord, help us to become more aware of your Holy Spirit. Position us, Lord, so we can do that. And then purpose. You know, the old Presbyterian catechism is the only thing. I went to Sunday school for a year. And it says, God, man's chief end is to glorify God and to serve him forever. That's our number one purpose. It's not about you or me. It's not about my will or your will. It's not about my way or, or what I think at the end of the day. It's about what God's plan and purpose. And so, so often we're looking to see what everybody else has. So, so often we're looking beyond the horizon. And God's saying, here, look what I've given you. Here, 
Yahweh. Yahweh. What about Yahweh? What about Yahweh? Paul, the first song that you sang, can we do that one again? Mm -hmm. Sure. Is that okay? 